I'm going to be focusing on the second half of Genesis chapter 4 from verses 17 to the end of the chapter. But so you get a full picture of the, of the, uh, the concept of the, the whole context. I'm going to read the entirety of chapter 4. Now Abel knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You should be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven, away, driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken upon him sevenfold. The Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and they settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built a city... He called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad. To Erad, oh sorry, and Erad fathered Mahujael. Mahujael fathered Methushael. Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the first was Ada. The name of the other, Zillah. Adol, Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of, of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of our Lord. Would you please be seated? And let's pray one more time together. Holy God, as we look at this passage of Scripture, oh Lord, there is so much for us to learn about who you are and, and what you are doing in redemption history. 
Lord, we pray that, that you would help us to see in this passage your faithfulness. Lord, your, your mercy and your grace upon those you have chosen as your chosen heritage. But Lord, we pray that you would help us also, also to see your common grace that, that you set upon even those who have rejected you, even those who you, whom you have rejected. We pray that this morning you would help us all to see which side we're on. And Lord, for those who are still walking in rejection and rebellion of you, we pray that you would grant them repentance, that they may be adopted into your family through the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to see, help us to understand, and help us to obey and worship you. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, Jane and I are thinking a lot about names these days. With baby number three arriving in December, Lord willing, we're regularly asking each other, we'll text each other and say, well, what do you think of this name? Or, or what do you think of that name? What about Siegfried? Or, or Ethel? Well, no offense to your uncle Siegfried or your aunt Ethel, but we, we want to choose names that, that are special to us, names that mean something. But what is true for us as parents are wanting to, wanting to give special names to our children, names that mean something, um, in, in our culture, personal names are, are often little more than labels that distinguish one person from another. As important as our family name is to us in our culture, it was far, far greater in biblical times in, in which a, a person's name had a much deeper significance. So in the, the culture of the Bible, in the ancient Near East, the, the, the name represented the whole person. The name represented who they were. Names had real meaning. In the early chapters of Genesis, there, there is also, there's, you can see this strong emphasis on names. Adam, Eve. Cain, Abel, and as we'll, we'll see, Seth in, in, the, in the latter half of, of Genesis 4 and into Genesis 5, we're, we're going to see a whole bunch of names that are listed one after the other. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Mahushael, and, and so on. These, as I said to the kids, these are, are genealogies. And a genealogy is, is, is really a, a list of of several generations that, that lists, it lists their, their lineage through the ancestors. And frankly, many of us struggle with our Bible reading when, when it comes to the genealogies. So maybe when, when you're reading your Bible, you, you skim quickly over the genealogies or, or maybe you, you skip them altogether. Well, there are 12 genealogies in the book of Genesis. So that means over the next year or so, we're going to be hearing a lot about genealogies. And this morning, we're going to be looking at two genealogies from the latter half of Genesis 4. Now, if you just groaned in your heart, I heard you. I'm just kidding. I, but, I, but I do, I, I, to, to a certain degree, I understand. And when I get to when I get to to First Chronicles, those first nine chapters of First Chronicles, sometimes I got to kind of brace myself. Okay, here we go. Nine chapters of names. 
And it's really, when, when I do that, or when we do that, it's, it's really demonstrating a, a failure to, to understand the, the genealogies and, and their place in Scripture. So, so when we, we, th- we think about the, the genealogies, many of us write them off as, as incomprehensible or irrelevant. We think that there's just so many names and they're, they're so hard to pronounce. We find them boring. We, we, we don't get the point. And it's easy to be, consu- to be confused by the genealogy because, because many of, of the, the names are, are just so foreign to us and, and many of them are repeated. Many of them are very similar. And, and there's times that there's, there's names that are actually omitted from genealogies that, that you can find in other places of Scripture that, that this person gave birth to, so, to so-and-so, but then when you read the genealogy, that person's name is absent. Now, some people use that as an excuse to say, well, the Bible, see, this got errors in it. But friends, that's just frankly not, not the case. I hope through our, our time in Genesis that, that you'll gain an understanding of the genealogies of Scripture, and you'll even gain an appreciation for the genealogies of, of Scripture, because after all, they, they are holy Scripture, and they are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We need to remember that when we read these genealogies that they're about real people. These are real people who, who lived, yes, a long time ago, but, but they were real people. People, in, in many cases, just like you and me. Michael Grisanti reminds us that, that the author of Genesis gathered together pre-existing written resources. He carefully drew on established oral traditions and received divine revelation in writing the book of Genesis. And so, so this is history. This is authoritative history. This is inspired history. This is inerrant history that we're reading in our, in our culture, there, there's been a, a growing interest in genealogies. Again, not the biblical genealogies, but, but we, we can read about websites like Ancestry.com or FamilySearch.org or the macabre-sounding BillionGraves.com. Websites like this are getting tons of hits. People are ordering DNA kits in order to see where they come from. Well, maybe one of the things that will help you in your understanding and your appreciation of genealogies and their importance is the fact that that these are your people. These are your people. The the names might sound foreign to you and they, they come from a place halfway around the world, but they are your people. This is your heritage. You are represented here. We are all represented in these genealogies in, in one sense or another. We also need to understand that, that there is a rhetorical, theological purpose in genealogies. In other words, these genealogies are, are here to teach you something. They're here, they're here to teach you something about God and about what God is doing in redemption history. And so these genealogies help you to see the storyline of the Bible, just to see what the Lord God is doing in redemption history to save the elect. 
They show you God's providential hand faithfully, sovereignly, wisely, lovingly, working out all things for his glory and for the good of his people. That's what these genealogies show us. One of my my doctoral classmates, Andrew Curry, did his dissertation on the genealogies of the Bible, and, and he called them the begatitudes. The begatitudes. And he did that because, because those generations, those begats, as is in the, the King James, uh, we, we actually see beatitudes. We see God's blessings on God's people. But that's not the only kind of genealogy you find in Scripture. We also see the genealogies of those who do not belong to God. We see the genealogies of those who have rejected God. Now, in these genealogies, you could call them perhaps the unelect genealogies, you also see God's grace. But you see it as God's common grace to undeserving sinners, despite their wanton wickedness. In the latter half of Genesis 4, again, our passage for this morning, we we see the, the first and the second genealogy that's presented in the Bible. The genealogy of Cain and the genealogy of Seth. This passage really aligns with the the Holy Spirit-inspired human author's intention in Genesis in general, and in this Toledot specifically. If you remember, that term Toledot refers to the the ten sections of of Genesis, and that word Toledot is, is translated in most Bibles, most modern Bibles, generations. So you can see why why this would be here at the end of, of this Toledot, because these, these are the generations here of the, the heavens and the earth. And then in chapter 5, we're going to go into the second Toledot, the, the Toledot of, of, Abraham, of, rather of Adam, and it's going to begin with another genealogy. Chapter 5 is, is one long genealogy. And so these two genealogies, are, they represent, the, these, the, they are the two offspring of Adam and Eve. And one is chosen and the other is rejected. One is is the people of God and the other is the people of the enemy. And they are they are they're there as the promise, the fulfillment of God's promise. So one is a a line of promise and the other is a line of rejection of that promise. You might be asking, what promise is that? Well, it's the, the, promises, the promise of Genesis 3, verse 15. The, the first instance of the gospel in the Bible. It takes, place, it takes place right after the first sin. Genesis 3, 15. Where God, it's part of the curse of the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So here we are seeing the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. The offspring of Eve that ultimately points to Jesus Christ. The offspring of the serpent points to Satan. And although these are a, they are ultimately, they're a spiritual offspring, not a biological offspring. Here at this point in redemption history, we see it played out in terms of family lines. So again, we have on the one hand, the the seed of Seth, that is the, the seed of promise, the offspring of promise. And we also see 
the, the offspring of the curse, the offspring of Cain. So here in this, in this passage, we, we see, the, again, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And, and so the, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are at war with each other. In Genesis 3, Satan declared war on God, and then he dragged men and women into the conflict. And the war is going to continue until the end of time, but decisive victory has already been won by Jesus Christ on the cross. When he gave up his life and he defeated sin, he defeated the world, he defeated hell, and he defeated the devil. But friends, one day he's returning when he will finally and fully complete the victory. And until that time, God is working out his redemptive plan in the lives of men and women, in the lives of the men and women that we read about in the scripture, in the line of the genealogies that we read about in the latter half of Genesis 4. Sidney Gradanus says, in the battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, God provides for the continued existence of the seed of the woman. God is faithful in continuing the line of the seed of the woman till Christ gains the final victory. So before moving on to the, the blessed genealogy in the last couple of verses of Genesis 4, we, we read about an, another genealogy. We read about the cursed genealogy. And you see that happen repeatedly in Genesis. Before going into detail about the blessed genealogy, you see the cursed genealogy. So you see that in, in Genesis 10. Uh, before describing the genealogy of, of Shem, the ancestor of Noah, Genesis describes the genealogies of Japheth and Ham, the Gentile nations. Similarly, in Genesis 25, we have the genealogy of Ishmael before the covenant genealogy of Isaac. In Genesis 36, you have the, the genealogy of rejected Esau before the genealogy of chosen Jacob. So here in, in Genesis 4, we see, we see these two genealogies. And my classmate who, who wrote on this wrote of, of this passage as being like a gospel tract. First showing the effects of the fall and the hardness of man's hearts before moving on to the good news of the promised seed. So in verses 17 to 22, we see the genealogy of Cain. And then in verses 23 and 24, uh, we have kind of an illustration of, of the, the wickedness of Cain's genealogy with the song of Lamech. And then finally in verses 25 and 26, we see the genealogy of Seth. So first of all, the genealogy of Cain from verses 17 to 22. This again is a continuation of life outside the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve had been expelled from the Garden for their sin, and then their, their offspring Cain, their first son, was banished even further east of Eden. In this passage, we see the origins of human society the beginning of what the New Testament refers to as the world. And again, remember, where we left Cain, he was, was jealous over the Lord's acceptance of his brother Abel and, and his offering. And so Cain killed his brother Abel in cold blood. And Cain was banished from the presence of the Lord, cursed from the ground, and cursed to a life of wandering. 
Yet here, even in his exile, we see the Lord's grace on him, marking him for protection. So as we begin our passage this morning, we, we, see, we see that this is, this is where Cain was, separated from God, wandering, cursed to wander. In verse 17, again, the Lord has mercy on him. He has grace. The, Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore a son. Now this is the grace of the Lord. Remember, what, what Cain did is, is punishable by death. This is, a, a, this is a capital crime. But God didn't only spare him, he had mercy on him. And he even did just, just even though he would have been well in his rights to cut Cain off completely and make him the end, God has mercy and grace on him and gives him a son. He promised to protect Cain. And Cain not only survives, but thrives at least genetically. It's not all positive. His offspring, as we will see, will be both notable and notorious. Well, this, with this, it says Cain knew his wife, and so you might be wondering, well, who was Cain's wife? This question has been used by many as an excuse for denying the Bible. Yet the simple answer is that she was one of Adam's daughters. We read about, about the other sons and daughters that, that Adam had in Genesis 5-4. The, the Bible is very clear. All people are descended from Adam. We've already seen that, that Eve is the mother of all living. Genesis 3-20. Acts 17-26 says, And he made, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So, so we have to, to accept the fact as, as, as disconcerting as it is to us, we have to accept the fact that, that Cain married his sister. Now we know that, that incestuous relationships will be forbidden by the Lord in the Mosaic Law. But we have to accept the fact that, at least for now, the Lord allowed it. Can you think of anybody else in Scripture who, who married his sister? Well, all these early offspring did. But Abraham, Abraham married his sister. Sarah was his half-sister. And the Lord blessed their union. In fact, the Lord promises Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, that, that through Abraham, every family of the earth would be blessed. Now, again, this, this to our minds is, is, is gross, and it should be, it's, but... One of the things that, uh, in, in explanation of this, um, Donald Gray Barnhouse says that the, the stream is purer, closer to the source, than at the mouth. So you can see in, in just a, a, a natural consequence of, of, of incest that happens in, in our culture today, that, that, that when that happens, quite often the, the children are born with serious genetic abnormalities. That's a natural consequence that, that the Lord built into it. But, but here, back early in, in creation, before that took place, the, the, this, was, this was not yet the case. And anyway, that's not the main point of this, but I, but I thought you might be having the question, so I thought I should probably um, seek to answer it. Um, Cain's son is named Enoch. Now, this is a bit confusing because 
because there's another Enoch in the Bible. But this is not the same Enoch that we read about in Genesis 5.24 who walked with God and he was not for God took him. That Enoch is from another line, the line of Seth, who we'll learn about later this morning and again next week, Lord willing. The, the name Enoch means to dedicate, to dedicate. And really this is ironic because Cain is, is anything but dedicated to the Lord. So we don't know who or what um, we don't know who or what Enoch was, was dedicated to, but, but I think at least it's, it's very possible here that this refers to the fact that, that Cain built a city and named it after his son Enoch. You can, you can see that uh, right there at the end of verse 17, that Cain built a city when he called the, the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. So this, this could be referring to this, the fact that, that the city was dedicated to Enoch. Now, does that strike you as, as strange at all, that, that, that it, you'd have Cain building a city? It should. Because do you remember what, what God had, how God had sentenced Cain? In the passage you looked at last week, he had sentenced Cain to a life of, of being a nomad, a life of wandering. So here we have Cain building a city. And, and the, the fact that he would do so is, is rebellion against God's decree. <coughs> and it seems to be further evidence that he rejected the Lord's sentence on him. So Enoch again is showing his character. We don't really read anything about Enoch except for the issue of the city. But in verse 18, we then have a, another, we have a succession of names with no detail given. To Enoch was born Erad. Erad fathered Mahujael. Mahujael fathered Methushael. Methushael fathered Lamech. Now again, this might be confusing to you, but because there's another Lamech in the Bible. But this is not the same Lamech who fathered Noah in, in Genesis 5.30. You need to read your Bible very carefully. Otherwise, you can get confused at, at these points. So this is not the same Lamech. We're going to see about his character in a, minute, in a moment. But, but it's again ironic that his name Lamech means humility. The name Lamech means humility. And as we'll see, Lamech is anything but humble. In, in, verses, in verse 19, things take another nosedive. Cain's great, great, great grandson, Lamech, isn't so great. First, in a departure of the divine blessing of marriage between one man and one woman, given in Genesis 2, 23 and 24, he marries two wives, Ada and Zillah. Now, Lamech was, therefore, the first polygamist, the first person to have more than one wife. Now, you might find it strange that there's no direct rebuke against Lamech here for, for doing this. But if you, if you track through the book of Genesis, you can see that almost every family, no, well, not just in Genesis, but, but the whole Old Testament, that almost every family where polygamy has taken place has resulted in domestic struggles, that result in strife and destruction. So though there's not a direct censure, you can see from what happens in the Word of God that 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 there's consequences, there's negative consequences to departing from God's plan in marriage. But that's not all that happens with Lamech. 
It's about to get a whole lot worse. But before we, we see the, this negative, this sin happening, something surprising happens. Through Lamech's two wives, Lamech fathers three children. Now the fact that he's having children isn't surprising. Given that he's got two wives, Ada and Zillah, he's got two wives, it's not surprising that he would have that we have uh, at least three children. In fact, he's got four from the scripture, but I'm sure he had many more than that. But these first three are notable. Jabal, the, the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And that, that term livestock here is broader than, than Abel's flocks. It would have included camels and donkeys. Jubal, the, the father of all those who play lyre and pipe. And Tubal-Cain, the forger of all instruments and of bronze and iron. So from these three sons of Lamech, we have three guilds, herdsmen, musicians, and metal workers. Now, now we, would all, we would expect that, that all of the line of, of Cain would be ruined, but, but here there's at least a temporal blessing. It, it seems that some good has come through the line of wicked Cain. Again, we're seeing the grace of God. We're seeing God's common grace on the wicked. The, the, the ungodly are, are capable of significant advances, aren't they? And we, we see this in our culture. Advances in medicine and, and technology and the arts are, and so on are often achieved through the ungodly. We see this in our day. Well, maybe you'd even wonder at, at, at what the ungodly who are around you have accomplished. Maybe you, you look at, at your neighbors and your co-workers and you're, you're tempted to be jealous about what they, they have achieved or, or what they apparently have achieved. You see their sin, but they seem to prosper. And again, maybe you're, you're tempted to be jealous of them and, or maybe to covet what they have. Maybe you would even be wondering to the point of, well, have I served God in vain? Because I'm, I'm suffering and, and these wicked people seem blessed? Well, Psalm 37 is, is helpful here. Um, Psalm 37, in verses 1 and 2, David writes, Fret not yourself because of evildoers, not, be not envious because of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Friends, the wicked often prosper in this life, whereas it is often God's plan for the Christian to suffer. Remember Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. See what he's saying there. That, that suffering is God's gift to you just as your salvation is God's gift to you. The word that's granted here is the same one from which we get the word charismatic, meaning gift. So there's a sense in which suffering is a charismatic gift. And it's a charismatic gift that, that many would probably want to give up. But it is nonetheless a gift from God. Why is, is suffering a gift from God? Well, it's a, it's a gift because of what God is doing redemptively. We were taught well a couple of weeks ago by, by John from, from James um, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 about, about the sanctifying effect of suffering. We're learning about it in our Bible study from 1 Peter. 
One, uh, Romans 5, 1 to 3 reveals it too. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Friends, we need not to be lulled to sleep by the prosperity around us, by the, the apparent prosperity even in our own lives. When we look throughout the history of the church, it's been, for the most part, a history of suffering. And so the things that, that we see on the horizon with the persecution of, of Christians that, that we pray about every week is very likely coming to, to us as well in the, in the not-too-distant future. But we need to understand that, that this is God's gift to us, that God is going to use suffering for our good and for his glory. And so you need to have a biblical theology of suffering. You also need to not be surprised at the prosperity of the wicked because you, you can think about their end. Psalm 73 is another psalm that's really helpful in dealing with the prosperity that you see in the wicked around you. In verse 17, we're, we're told that the psalmist looks at their end. He considers the outcome of their way of life. The fact that there is a day of reckoning when they will be judged for their sin. So friends, don't be concerned. Don't concern yourself with the wicked except to love them and to share the gospel with them. Instead, follow Psalm 37, 36. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He, may bring, he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Don't take the fact that God is going to give you the desires of your heart as a proof text to say that God is going to give you everything you want. God is going to give you desires that line up with his desires. He's actually going to give you the desires that, that are truly for your good, for your eternal good. Not just that something that's going to make you feel momentarily better, but he has your eternal well-being in mind. So Cain and his, his, and his offspring, as, like those we read about in Psalm 37, will soon fade like the grass and they will wither like the green herb. For after this passage, we're not going to hear from them ever again. But before their silence in Scripture, we're going to hear one last bombastic tirade that reveals the reality, the spiritual and eternal reality for the offspring of Cain. And it illustrates that Cain and his offspring are not gods. For we see amid the, the advance of culture, we also have the advance of sin. So moving quickly here, in, in verses 23 and 24, we have the Psalm of Lamech. Lamech, whose name, remember, means humility, is here strutting before his wives, boasting about murder and making threats in, in what is actually a poem. The first poem, if you'll remember, it was a, was a love poem in Genesis 2.23, when Adam first saw his wife. But this poem is a hate poem. Lamech is here boasting before his two wives, at least in part it seems, to intimidate them. And in doing so, he's fulfilling the curse 
of the fall from Genesis 3.16, that that the man would, would rule over his wife, that he would oppress his wife. So not only do you have the the degradation of polygamy here, but you also have pride in the horror of a violent murder. This this poem is sometimes called the Song of the Sword. And its content sounds a a lot like like much of the the violent, misogynistic hip-hop music you'll hear on the radio these days. As an aside, in, in February, uh, in, in hip-hop, you might not be aware of this, is actually considered to be the most popular genre in, in, in music today, in secular music today. In February of this year, 18 of 25 of Billboard's top rap songs had lyrics describing women in the most offensive of terms. This is what our culture is being fed on. And in, in one sense, and maybe you could say that, that, that what Lamech did here was the, was the first was the first wicked hip-hop song. Many more will follow in his place. He says, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Lamech, we we see, is, is merely struck, and he retaliates by committing murder. We've seen repeatedly through, through the, the effects of the fall that, that when, when the Lord God brings down a consequence, it always fits the crime. But here what, what Lamech did is certainly does not fit the crime. The word that's translated here, young man, likely refers to, to that of a, of a young person, someone vulnerable. And so Lamech's crime is even more reprehensible. God had protected Cain by promising that anyone who harmed him would be revenged sevenfold. Now Lamech boasts that he will take vengeance seventy-sevenfold. Lamech follows in the sin of Cain, his great-great-great-grandfather. You can see here the the degeneration of sin. You can see how the Lord visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Exodus 34, 7. So Cain's murder was motivated by envy and Lamech's was motivated by pride. Cain surrendered to the temptation to murder and Lamech boasts in it. Cain fearfully sought protection from the Lord and Lamech boasts in his own vengeance. And so with that, Cain and his family disappear from the biblical testimony. We don't hear from them again. We don't see them again. But there is a sense in which we do see them again and again with different names and different details. Their sins are repeated throughout the scripture. Their sins are repeated in all cultures at all times. And if we're honest, we need to admit that their sins are repeated by us. We talked about that last week as as we we looked at Cain and and it's so easy to condemn Cain as we saw that that Cain's, the the, the blood cried out, the blood that the ground cried out that it received his brother Abel's blood, but that we are told that the blood of Jesus speaks of, of, of a greater promise. Whereas the ground called out for vengeance on Cain, the blood of Jesus calls out for forgiveness. Because we are guilty. 
like Cain. We, we might not have actually ever murdered our brother, but have we murdered a brother or a sister in our heart? We might never have, have offered the kind of, of false worship that, that Abel offered, at least in an extent, but whenever we fail to worship God as we're, as we're singing or, or, or praising or, or supposed to be praising or praying or reading the word or, or living our lives, we are failing to worship just like Cain did. You might not boast in, in murder, but what do you boast in? We have to acknowledge that, that in these scriptures, we see ourselves. We see our, our need for forgiveness in Christ. And not just forgiveness that was, was granted to you at your conversion, but forgiveness that you need every single day. Because we still fail, we still sin, we still stumble in many ways. But God's grace has poured abroad in our hearts through the blood of Christ. Derek Kidner points out that Cain's family is really a microcosm. It's a pattern, uh, its pattern of technical prowess and moral failure is that of humanity. So we need to see ourselves here. We, we need to, to see our need for mercy to the loving God. So here, wedged between these, these two acts of murder, we see another genealogy. The, the, the Bible is very clear to, to point out the negativity of the line of Cain, the sin of the line of Cain, but now we have a stark contrast with the genealogy of Seth in verses 25 and 26. Now Genesis 5 is going to go into a lot more detail about Seth's line, but with the time we have left, let's, let's quickly look at this brief genealogy which were given in, in two verses. Verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Now, one thing that, that I want to point out here is that we shouldn't forget the longevity of these patriarchs. Adam would have been alive at, at, at the time of, of all of these events. In fact, Noah was the first person to be born after the death of Adam. But Adam is not the focus here. Instead, initially, it's, it's Eve. We've seen that the first, the first round is won by the serpent in the murder of righteous Abel. But the gift of Seth ensures that the promise will stay alive through Eve, who is once again proved to be the mother of all living, as Adam had called her in Genesis 3.20. Now, it's interesting here that, that though Eve uses, uses the, if you'll see in your Bible there, it's, it's capital G-O-D, the, the name God, or, which, is, which is a translation of, of Elohim, the only other place in, the Toledot, in this Toledot where that name is used, the name Elohim is used, is in a conversation with the serpent. Yet here, Eve's faith is even now clearer than it was back in chapter 4, verse 1. Before it was, I have, though with the Lord's help, but now it's God has. She described Cain as a man, and she describes Seth as a seed. 
And the name Seth means appointed. So it seems to understand, it seems to, to, to demonstrate that she understands what God is doing here, again in fulfillment of God's promise from Genesis 3.15, that her seed would crush the serpent's head. Her hope that, that Cain was a promised seed was dashed as Cain removed himself and Abel from the equation. But now Eve acknowledges that Seth replaces Abel, not Cain. So in Eve's response to this, there, there seems to be a spiritual growth, a, well, a growing spiritual understanding of what God is doing. And the, she names his son, the son Enosh, which, which means frail man. This is contrasted with, with Lamech's pride and self-reliance. Here we see human frailty. Keelan and Delish say, In this name, therefore, the feeling and knowledge of human weakness and frailty were expressed. This is the opposite of the pride and arrogance displayed by the line of Cain. And this feeling led to God that the invocation of the name Jehovah, which commenced under the name Enosh. So we see from 2 Corinthians 12, 9, that that. that in, in our weakness, there is strength. Friends, God's plan will not be thwarted. Seth represents a new start. It is his offspring who will survive the flood. Genesis 4.26 closes with the words, To Seth is also, also a son was born, and his name was called Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. People began to worship God. Abel worshipped the Lord. Adam and Eve spoke to, to him in the garden. Cain spoke to him outside the garden. And, and though, although worship through offerings was practiced by both Cain and Abel in the first part of, of Genesis 4, Genesis 4.26 announces a new direction in formal worship. As in Abraham's building of the altar upon arriving in Canaan where the same phrase uh, is, is used, that he called on the name of the Lord in, in Genesis 12, 8. So again, contrasted with the, the wickedness of the line of Cain, we see the worship of the line of Seth. We see the beginnings of, of, of the fulfillment of God's promise that, that it's going to again be finally fulfilled in, in Christ. But notice here that that it's the people began to call on the name of the Lord. And, and there you'll see in, in your Bible a, a, a large capital L and then a smaller capital O-R-D. And when you see that in your Bible, as most of you, I, I hope, are aware, it refers to Yahweh, the covenant name of God. You might be wondering, well, hang on a second. Doesn't this, this contradict what we read about in, in Genesis uh, or in Exodus, rather, chapter 3, where it says that the name of Yahweh was introduced to Moses? Well, I believe what's happening here is that, that they were actually using the name Yahweh here in Genesis, but in, in Exodus they understand more fully all of, of what is meant by the covenant name of God in the, un, in the progressive unfolding of redemption history. So the people there in Exodus 3 begin to see more fully who Yahweh is. Again, Yahweh is the, the covenant name of God. It's, it means I am. It's saying, he's saying I am the one with whom there is no beginning and no end. I never change. I'm the same yesterday and today and forever. I am the faithful covenant-keeping God. And we see this also in Exodus 34, 6-8 that we read with the call to worship. 
where again the Lord appeared before Moses when he hit him in the cleft of the rock and, and protected him from the, the, full, the fullness of God's glory. The Lord cried out, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So here in these generations, in these, these generations of Cain and the generations of Seth, we see the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of, of God to, to bless his covenant people and even to give covenant, covenant even to give, uh, give common grace to those who are unelect, to those who have rejected him and will persist in rejecting him. So the final note in this Toledot, this, this final note in this section from chapter 2, verse 4 to 426, offers at last a bright spot among the accounts of sin and death that have really dominated this, this story of the garden. There's yet hope for humanity, even for sinful humanity. And so redemption history is going to progress forward from the line of Seth to Jesus Christ, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God, Luke 3, 38. I'll close with the opening lines of, of John Milton's famous epic poem, Paradise Lost. Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden till one greater man Restore us and regain the blissful seat. Friends, this is the promise that is for all of those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus? Are you through the work of the Holy Spirit, of the line of Seth, of the line of Jesus Christ? Or are you hardened in your sin and rebellion of God and are still under the line of Cain and still under God's holy and just wrath. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we thank you for this passage and for the truths, these inspired truths that you bring before us this morning. And we pray, Spirit, that you would work in our hearts. Lord, that you'd help us all to see who we are in this passage. That you would all that you help us all to see to whom we belong in this passage, whether we belong to Jesus Christ or whether we belong to Satan. And Lord, we pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord God, that you would transfer all of us into your heavenly family, that you would adopt all of us through Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.